You are listening to National Security Law Today. Welcome to National Security Law Today. This is part two of our conversation with Steve Pellick on immunity, FCA, and JASTA. If you haven't already, go back and listen to part one of our interview to get some background on Steve and on these legal issues. And I am Nicole, one of your moderators and a member of the committee staff. Your other moderators today are national security attorneys here moderating as individuals and not on behalf of their agencies or firms. You can find out more about the Standing Committee online or join our listserv at americanbar.org slash natsecurity. And I'm Yvette, another one of your moderators. This podcast will discuss national security issues in the news and provide critical baseline information about the issues for new lawyers, lawyers that have been practicing national security law for years, journalists, and non-lawyers eager to improve their understanding of national security issues. And I'm Elisa, another one of your moderators. The ABA Standing Committee is comprised of seasoned national security lawyers and law professors, and the committee has spent the past 55 years keeping lawyers and the public informed and aware of the most pressing questions in national security law. Join us at one of our monthly speaker programs or at our annual conference in November to hear more about what's happening today and what will happen tomorrow on issues of national security law. We will deliver sober, well-reflected, unbiased updates on the hottest topics in the world of national security law. But never boring, unless you have an itty-bitty little span of attention. Well, you know those people. They're always flipping through their phones. They're the channel surfers. Indeed. Not our listeners. (laughs) They like to dig deep and learn more. During the podcast, you can find links to the Black Letter Law and articles on today's topic at AmericanBar.org slash NatSecurity and in the notes to this podcast. In addition, you can find links to other books, learned treatises, and academic articles on today's topics on our website. At the end of this podcast, please drop us a note at NationalSecurity at AmericanBar.org or on Twitter at ABANatSec. We welcome your feedback, and let's get back to Steve. Well, this is really amazing, but the most recent thing to happen, um, I think, is incredibly significant, and that is the Justice Against Sponsors of Terrorism Act in 2016. Can you talk a little bit about that? I think we should probably acknowledge some of the sponsors of that particular piece of legislation, but what did it do, and how did it change things? And can you talk a little bit about what the concern was with respect to Saudi Arabia during the conversations about that legislation? There were some concerns yeah, well, the um, I think there may be a couple different strands going on there, uh, maybe. But with regard to the compensation, um, you know, it's difficult. You have this judgment, then, but then to recover on it. But the victims don't want to, they really don't want to recover. I know now from personal knowledge, they don't want to recover on the U.S. FISC. So in other words, they don't, the idea for many of them is to pursue these actions as a deterrent to Sudan, to Syria to Iran, right? That's the idea. So it does no good if a U.S. taxpayer somehow, some way, is paying on the judgment. I, I shouldn't say it does no good, but it's not as valuable, obviously. Right. So the idea that was born was, in our heads, was to say, look, how about the sanction fines and forfeitures paid by people in conspiracy with these nations to violate our laws? And it was really born out of when BNP Paribas, they pled guilty in the summer of 2014. And shortly after that, we had an idea of, well, what if some of those funds were potentially used to pay these judgment creditors, right? 
Um, and that's what ultimately then came about in this legislation to say that BNP Paribas ended up paying to the federal government, just to the federal government, $3.8 billion for running tens, actually more than $100 billion, it was alleged, through the U.S. over a course of some 15 years almost, more than a decade, in the course of that conspiracy with Sudan principally, but also with Cuba to a lesser extent and to Iran, um, they paid this $3.8 billion in forfeiture and fine to the federal government. And one bill, ultimately, what the legislation did was to say $1 billion of that money is going to go into a special fund, and that fund is going to pay judgment creditors who are going to apply. So it's you've proven your case, just like we talked about that three-day trial. You've done all that, right? This isn't someone just saying, I would like X amount. This is someone that's proven their case. They've established their their damages, and they make an application to a special master, in this case, Ken Feinberg. And then it's set up in a very, very uh, wise way, in a pro rata way. So in other words, all judgment creditors against state sponsors of terror are eligible to have their compensatory damages paid together. And if you get to 30% of your compensatory damages, you stop until everybody rises to 30%. So all the boats have to rise up to 30%. In addition, the Iranian hostages were included by the Algiers Accord. Just goes back to our, I forgot that question, Lisa, I apologize. <laughs> that history. That little, mo- that little thing in history sometimes so we forget. So President Carter negotiated and President Reagan confirmed it and affirmed or affirmed it. Um, an agreement with the Iranians referred to as the Algiers Accord. And one of the elements were, there was a number of things, but it had set up a tribunal in which claims could be adjudicated back and forth. But with regard to the hostages, the agreement said basically, that's the end of the day. That's it. That's it. And Iran is not going to be held to account, financially or otherwise, for taking those hostages. And so those individuals never recovered, and they could never bring cases. They actually did bring cases, but they were dismissed, Um, sometimes at the district court, sometimes the court of appeals level, but they were always dismissed, whatever theory they did. But in doing this legislation, and it's a great testament to these plaintiff's attorneys, that it wasn't just limited to the judgment creditors. The Iranian hostages in the initial proposal that was even proposed to Congress uh, were included. And they were provided this, what the D.C. Circuit has uh, been approving for a number of years, $10,000 a day. And their surviving spouses and children were each given a lump sum payment of 600000 from this special fund. Wow. So it really was, and especially as, you know, as a young guy growing up uh, just out of uh, high school then, but the Iranian hostage, I'm not sure, you know, if you hadn't lived through it, how much it really influenced our society at that time. It really did, uh, even more so, almost because there's less, less news means more news in many ways, you know. Now we're just so inundated with uh, tragedy and atrocities, sometimes it just kind of washes over. But when the hostages were taken, that was a, a huge impact on our national psyche. And in any event, the legislation has now provided uh, benefits to the first uh, 2,000, some 2,000 eligible claimants have been paid a billion dollars. Ken Feinberg, those payments went out this past February and March, including, as I mentioned, the Iran hostages. And the program's set to last for 10 years. 
and to allow for 10 annual payments as long as there's sufficient funds um, you know, from these fines and forfeitures. And for the next series of payments, there's already sufficient funds based on uh, several guilty pleas and forfeitures. A large Chinese electronics company has pled guilty and paid several hundred million dollars, near a billion dollars, for Iranian sanctions violations, and those monies are in there. So that, uh, and I should, we should, Elisa, you mentioned, uh, take a moment just to um, the legislators. There are a number of legislators that really pushed it, but Bob Goodlatte, uh, Virginia representative, Peter King, uh, New York representative, Chuck Schumer, senator from New York, Senator uh, Charles Grassley from Iowa, and Senator uh, Gillibrand from New York, among others, were really huge advocates and uh, proponents of it and helped to get through. And it was a bipartisan effort. It really, yeah, it really was. It really was. Uh, and uh, you know, as I said, uh, you know, pro rata, uh, all the boats float together, and it's not tax dollars in the least. Um, I should take a moment, really, just to uh, mention a couple of the private council that have been doing this work. I yeah, I think that would be helpful. Yeah, I obviously just come into this in the last few years. I'm familiar with it because I did terrorism stuff in the past in addition to the export controls and the sanction stuff and you know but these men in particular and um, and women um, have done great work for many many years uh, beginning at the very beginning back in the uh, early 1990s and leading to the legislation a fellow by the name of Steve Perlis who's in practice here in DC and he works uh, with another lawyer by the name of Ed McAllister they've done great work particularly on behalf of the Marines uh, killed and injured in the 83 bombing, as well as in a series of others. Jim Kreinler of Kreinler and Kreinler in New York done uh, outstanding trial work, uh, the Lockerbie and other matters, uh, really an aviation litigation expert, and he's applied it here. There's a fellow at Boyce uh, Law Firm, uh, Doug Mitchell, who's done great work, and a couple others in New York who've done a lot of work in the Marine Corps' case as well, Jim Bonner and Leeview Vogel. And as well, in those cases and others, uh, two fellows from Crowell Mooring, Stu Newberger and Cliff Egerton, Elgerton, excuse me. You know, these are folks who, although private counsel, and although who has a, I was an AUSA, and, you know, as I mentioned before, sometimes government counsel aren't quick to recognize that private counsel are doing the people's work. Those, those gentlemen are really doing, and they've been doing the people's work in many instances, really now for 30 years in pursuit of these actions. So. I think it's really useful that you mention, you know, these particular people and their firms, and it really does illuminate a path for young lawyers to take, and they can see that the only place to go and do national security law is not necessarily state L or DOJ or DOD. You could go and work at one of these firms and do this kind of work if, it, if you think it would be meaningful to you. You really can, and I mean, it's difficult work. As much as, you know, we can talk about some of the successes, and we're talking particularly about this recent legislation that was enacted in December of 2015, which really came about. Um, I, I participated in uh, some of the initial drafts in, with Steve Perlis and, and then with Stu Nurberger and Cliff Egerton and, and a couple others, really as a team project, if you will, to come up with some ideas to present to Congress. And fortunately, we were fortunate enough to have it enacted but it is. You're absolutely um, right, Yvette. You can, um, you can serve the people in a lot of different ways. Uh, there's a famous saying, actually, that to serve the public good, you have to have a private station. And um, I don't believe that's always the case, but it often is the case. Um, 
the other thing you had mentioned was about Saudi Arabia, and that really gets, I think you were uh, referencing an act in September of just this past year called the Justice Against Sponsors of Terrorism Act, or JASTA. And uh, there was a piece of legislation that added a provision to the Foreign Sovereign's Immunity Act to remove foreign sovereign, sovereign immunity for any foreign nation, not just state sponsors of terrors, for any foreign nation that causes an act of international terrorism occurring in the U.S. and resulting in injury or to a person or property or death. So it was really targeted at the 9-11 attack and uh, recovery in that instance, which litigation uh, wasn't available under existing law. And so this added terrorism exception for terrorism occurring in the U.S. was established. It just enacted plenty of questions to it, and they will arise in the years to come. Um, And I believe it has no, you know, it doesn't allow for anything, no recovery for acts occurring before that legislation was um, passed. Well, actually it does. It allows for acts from 9-11-2001 forward if you had a pending action. So what you're getting at is either you had to have a pending action when it was enacted here in September of 2016 or afterwards. So the 9-11 victims or their families, in most instances, had pending actions. So they are eligible to try to pursue recovery under that. And there will be a number of... um, issues that will come up. I mean, the statute has limitations in it. For instance, mere negligence by a foreign government would not be sufficient. So really, what's the scope of that? And is that always a fact question that will be subject to trials and discovery, right? That's that's a big issue. Another when, challenge for lawyers in the private national security space. <laughs> no, exactly, exactly. But there's another component of JASTA, and I'd love if you could just talk a little bit about it. It was passed over President Obama's veto, and if you could talk about what the objections were uh, to, you know, from the government's perspective to JASTA and why um, there was such a bipartisan effort to pass it in the end. Yeah, you know, difficult to speak to all of the political reasons, but I mean, from the governmental standpoint, uh, you know, if I were uh, a State Department lawyer on, you know, and you were asking me that question, I mean, one can think of uh, the arguments that would flow from that would be that, well, with regard to the acts of either hostage-taking, aircraft sabotage, uh, torture, extrajudicial killing by state sponsors of terror, those are all carefully defined acts, and they're limited to a group of nations which are under international sanction. Each one of those nations are under international sanction, right? And each one of those bases for the cause of action, that hostage-taking or torture, those are all subjects of international conventions that inter- that the international community has agreed to outlaw. The statute here is slightly broader than that. When you incorporate, which they do, international terrorism, which is broadly um, defined, um, you know, to uh, involve acts, violent acts, in um, you know, in the U.S. In this instance, violent acts in the U.S. which are intended to either coerce a civilian population or to change policy of a government, you know, the the breadth of those type of acts are much broader 
uh, give you just one quick example. I, I brought in some newspapers here from recent times. Is in May of this year, right? There was uh, an incident. There were protesters protesting the um, the leader of Turkey, Mr. Erdogan, here, and his bodyguards assaulted them and severely beat several of them here in a in a local park, right? And in approximately the same spot where Latelier's right. bomb went off. Yeah, not left. too far from Sheridan Circle. That's exactly right. Now, arguably, arguably that action was taken to silence those folks and send not send a message to the US population but to coerce a civilian population in Turkey to say if I can do this in the nation's capital of the United States of America what do you think I can do to you in Turkey right and the Obama administration also expressed some concerns about interfering with diplomatic negotiations and relationships as well when JASTA was uh, under consideration. That's right? Yeah, I mean, clearly, the uh, at least the initial focus, although the possibilities are much wider, the initial focuses were on Saudi Arabia, right, in our relations and our long-established relations uh, with Saudi Arabia, and so that was very delicate. But then also, I think, from a diplomatic standpoint, what President Obama and others argued was that, well, we have to be careful about how far to extend finding exceptions to sovereign immunity because what we do to others may be done to us, right? So, um, and the, it really becomes a question not so much on direct actions, but the questions are, arise when um, a government, it could be any government, say France, provides a contribution to some association, and that association, charitable organization, let's say, right, then uses that money and provides it on to some terrorist group, right, and a terrorist act occurs. Okay, so will that foreign government be responsible? I don't know. The statute, I think there are arguments that folks can use both ways under the statute in those kind of instances. It doesn't cover mere negligence. It's not intended to cover omissions, right, a failure of due diligence possibly. But that's all to be worked out. And I think those were the concerns that were being raised. On the other hand, if someone is committing an act of terrorism, like the Letelier bombing, that's pretty clear that, that, that should, there should be a cause of action, um, I think, if you can prove that type of action, where a foreign government has come into our nation and sought to blow people up. Yeah, and disrespected our borders and our rule of law as well. That's exactly right. Right. So thanks so much for all of that background. I would love to hear more about the work you're doing now on behalf of victims of terrorism and how that work has uh, had to change considering all the changes in law. Yeah, well, uh, excellent question. And we're, um, uh, I contribute assistance on a couple of different ongoing projects to recover damages, to identify damages. In, in other words, to identify resources of foreign nations, specifically Iran, Sudan, to a lesser extent Syria as well, but to try to identify those and then to uh, pursue theories of how to attach them, either in the United States or around the world, or to um, create circumstances where those resources might move to the U.S. So, <laughs> so that's you know. So we do that. Also, uh, we brought it public, and I've signed the complaint, so it's um, a matter of public record. We sued the government of Iran on behalf of uh, three service members who were abducted and murdered by Iranian agents in January of 2007 in Karbala in Iraq, 
as well as another abduction of another U.S. service member in October of 2006 and who was subsequently killed as well. So that's ongoing litigation, and we'll have a trial, a bench trial, in the new year for that matter to prove liability and then damages probably through a special master. So those events are ongoing. All right. Well, uh, you know, we've had a change of administration recently, and um, we have a Congress that is some days talks to each other, but for the most part doesn't appear to be. And I wonder what we should expect in the future. Are they remaining interested in this topic? Do you feel that it's it's as palpable as it was, say, in the days after 9-11? Um, what should we expect? Yeah, th- that's an interesting question. I, I think there certainly are the people, if you will, the rank-and-file members of the executive branch certainly are. Uh, the difficulties we've run into with regard to getting action or information or even discovery, for instance, in these matters is just a lack of people, right? There's, there have been, um, at least up to date, many vacant positions, and um, that slows things down, right? Because people don't know, uh, can they make a decision? Should they make a decision? Who should right. sign off on this decision? Those are the difficulties that we face. I mean, one remains hopeful that over time that will resolve itself as well as sort of substantively. I don't really see any reason, I don't see any reason why the current administration, regardless of what one may think of various elements of it, why they should take a different position with regard to uh, these matters. It really just doesn't make much sense. Right, right. It seems to be something that we can all agree on. So I'd love to shift gears here for a minute and talk about how you got your start. We had more of a formal introduction to you in our last podcast. We'd love to know a little bit more of the informal side. So my understanding is that you uh, are a native of Detroit, which is Eminem's old stomping grounds. And your future began with your humble work as a golf caddy who was good at listening um, before you rose to uh, national security law superstardom. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Uh, yeah, I actually I laugh about that with people, um, especially with clients that might be paying me a lot of money. Uh, if, they, if they ask me, you know, about becoming a lawyer or, you know, how do you, how did I learn? Because to be honest with you, sometimes clients will be in the business community, obviously. You know, I've been a prosecutor my whole life, right? And um, so they'll, add, you know, sometimes be surprised, like that I, I will listen. And I th- I'd like to think, you know, fairly balanced in my, in my views. But a lot of that comes from uh, being a caddy. And there's no better way to learn how American business works than being on the golf course, right, as a young kid, <laughs> and carrying a bag throughout the day. And uh, but yeah, that's it's funny about that. And and actually, um, yeah, Eminem went to Warren Lincoln. I went to Warren Mott. They were a rival. Uh, they had better wrestlers just because usually their guys were a little tougher. Although we were pretty good, but they were a little tougher. <laughs> so. so, so in addition to your your writings and work, we should look forward to a wrestling match between you and I, Eminem. I don't, you know, <laughs> you know, he's only I got him. He's got me by about ten or twelve years, I think. <laughs> but I, I'd, I'd probably give it a go. I don't think he's that big of a guy. So, all right. Well, um, I really appreciate you coming in, but. Um, Again, I, I want you to give a little bit of advice to young lawyers out there, and in particular some listening to this would say, hey, you know what, I really want to fight the powers that be in, on the globe. Um, I'd like to take something like this up. I'd like to represent victims. I'd like to work in this space. But in general, I think they're just looking for guidance from lawyers who made it. Yeah. Can you give us a few thoughts? Yeah, I mean, I, um, I've been blessed uh, with the 
uh, a great family and uh, got four young people that are all adults now and making their way in the world. And, you know, I, my sympathies really for a lot of young people because I, I think it was, in some ways, uh, there were some easier paths, I think, um, uh, a few years back. But putting that to one side, what I would tell people at base is there's many, many different ways to contribute to society. And there isn't one way. There aren't just two ways. You first have to know yourself and what your own skills are and what you'd like to do. And different people have different skills and different interests, whether it's in litigation or counseling or, you know, whether it's in the practice of law or using your legal degree in some other pursuit, right? There's a lot of different paths, and so there's not one way. And to know yourself the first. And, you know, a couple examples come to mind, and so people can see. Um, I'm reminded of a woman that I was uh, in AUSA with who's now the director of the in Department of Justice, National Security Division, the Office for Justice for Victims of Overseas Terrorism, Heather Cartwright. Um, and, you know, she just does fabulous work there, right, for these victims. Um, there's many other branches of our executive um, government, for instance, OFAC, that you can do tremendous work. There's a woman there, uh, the deputy director, a woman who's an outstanding lawyer, Andrea Gacki, who was in the federal programs, right, for the Department of Justice. Not necessarily anything to do with national security, uh, but that's what she did, and that's uh, ended up doing some work in relation to OFAC and ended up going to OFAC. And, has found a career. Office. Office of Foreign Assets Control in the Treasury Department. They are the mothership, and they have been since actually World War II or actually before. I think they got their name in the 50s, but um, uh, they are the originator of all the sanctions. They've been led by uh, a number of some high-quality people in the past, um, Andrea now being one of them as a deputy director, Adam Zubin in the past uh, being the director. Um, and then one can think of Quite plainly, um, agencies like the CIA, Department of Defense, the FBI, the State Department, all great places for lawyers in a lot of different capacities to work. Everything from being an agent to being uh, um, you know, an, in, in the analytical world of those agencies, uh, to being a lawyer, to consulting. Um, uh, you know, so there isn't just one good path. The, the first thing is to be good at whatever you do and know your craft and learn it. Um, personally, I started in private practice, and I would recommend that for folks. Um, and I had the uh, great fortune and really just the blind luck in some ways, I think. I worked for some, uh, actually the deputy uh, special prosecutor from the Watergate prosecution team and several of his assistants. And those were my first teachers, a fellow by the name of Phil Lacavara, who was a great lawyer, and, and Peter Crindler, and a fellow by the name of Jay Wright. Um, and those those men really taught me well. And that's, I, you know, if you're interested in doing litigation and then for the government, I think that might be one path to consider private practice for several years and, and then to go to the government. That's pretty fortunate. Phil Lacabarro was one of the, uh, the people who testified during uh, passage of the Classified Information Procedures Act. Yeah. Uh, on yeah. the Hill for the Justice Department, I believe, at the time. He argued as a young, um, you know, deputy to first uh, Mr. Cox and then Mr. Jaworski. He argued half of the Nixon Stapes case in the Supreme Court, right? That's right. Boy, um, that's a real fortunate uh, mentor. Yeah, he was a great. Yeah, let me give one quick story that for young lawyers, though, how important it is, little simple things and, you know, to know your craft. And it was something, he was a great appellate lawyer, right? And, um, you know, I'm a decent appellate lawyer, but I never really wanted to be an appellate lawyer. I wanted to be more of a trial lawyer. 
but I remember once writing something for him. He said, fine, Steve, this is great, but I've got a special rule for all my briefs, right? And this is a guy who was a deputy solicitor general, right? There, and I'm saying, yes, Mr. Lacavara, what is it? He said, it's a three-finger rule. And I said, well, what does that mean? And he said, no paragraphs wider or longer than the width of my three fingers, <laughs> right? And Young lawyers, that's absolutely a true. Because, and, and from that day, sometime in the 1980s until all my years as an AUSA, I always had an overabundance of headings, numbers, um, bolding, and brief paragraphs, right? That is very practical advice, sir. Oh, it, it's helpful because you got really little time to get, whether it's a client, whether it's a court, whether it's an executive agency, you've only got so much time on their attention, right? Then they lose it. So get it while you can. And say what you got to say and then sit out. Well, that's what the law schools are teaching now, more clarity of arguing your opinion as opposed to grand eloquence and showing off, you know, you just really want to get to the point, get in, get out, communicate, and be done. Yeah, very, very, very effective. Yeah, acknowledging the reality of everyone's attention span. Steve, it has been so great to have you here today. Um, We celebrate what you're doing, and we look forward to hearing more about your work in the future with respect to victims. Uh, We think it's one of the most uh, important quests that anyone can undertake in the private practice of national security law. Um, Incredibly valuable. But again, we hope you'll come back to us on exports because we know how much you know about that, and I think our listeners can really benefit. Uh, And We think your clients are very fortunate to have you. Well, Lisa and Yvette, Nicole, thank you very much for having me. It's been a pleasure, and uh, anything and everything you can do to to educate the public, I think, is uh, of great benefit to all the people. That's what a capital P. So thank you for listening to the podcast of the Standing Committee on Law and National Security. Tune in again soon for our next episode. So right now, if you're thinking, if you're out there and you're thinking about how much you want to practice law in a skiff and pop vitamin D all day, or maybe you would prefer to get sunlight and help the families of victims of terrorism or work on other national security law issues where you won't need supplements. Or you are just smart enough to know that national security law gives you a front row seat to history. And you don't want to sit on the sidelines or watch life from a distance. Then join us again next time for National Security Law Today, brought to you by the American Bar Association's Standing Committee on Law and National Security. And let me remind you that... Listening to a podcast is informative, and we're glad you're here. But social networking isn't really networking. Show up at one of our breakfasts or lunches or conferences. Check us out at AmericanBar.org forward slash NatSecurity or follow us on Twitter at ABA NatSec. And don't forget that every serious national security lawyer has one great book on their desk, the 2017 U.S. Intelligence Community Law Sourcebook, available for purchase on our website. From all of us here, thank you for listening. We'll see you next time. Thank you for listening to National Security Law Today. Look for links to the Black Letter Laws and articles mentioned on our show today in the notes or on our website. You can also find us on Twitter at ABA Matt Sack.